Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparra. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 11th through Sunday, June 3rd, feature guest conductor Marek Janowski. The program includes the overture to Karl Maria von Weber's Guriante, Beethoven's Symphony No. 4, and after intermission, music by Wagner, Overture and Venusberg music from Tannhäuser, and the preludes to Acts 3 and 1 of Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg. Here are Philipp Huscher's program notes on Beethoven's Symphony No. 4, a work lasting about 32 minutes. Generations of music lovers have described and sometimes dismissed Beethoven's even-numbered symphonies as lyrical and relaxed compared to their spunky, cultish, odd-numbered neighbors. The fourth in B-flat major has suffered from that fate perhaps more than any. Not long after Beethoven's death, Robert Schumann called it a slender Grecian maiden between two Nordic giants. And at the end of the 19th century, George Grove, the Grove of the celebrated Dictionary of Music and Musicians, commented that this symphony is a complete contrast to both its predecessor and successor and is as gay and spontaneous as they are serious and lofty. Grove thought that this accounted for the fact that it had not yet had justice done it by the public. And as Grove might have predicted, in our own time, the Chicago Symphony has played the third and fifth symphonies with much greater regularity. Schumann was perhaps the first musician to warn us not to overlook the fourth's own special qualities. Do not illustrate his genius with the ninth symphony alone, no matter how great its audacity and scope never uttered in any tongue. You can do as much with his first symphony or with the Greek-like slender one in B-flat major. Beethoven began his B-flat major symphony in the summer of 1806 when he retired to the country estate of Prince Karl von Luchowski, one of the most devoted of the composer's early admirers. This score, as well as the fourth piano concerto and the violin concerto, all completed late in 1806, interrupted work on his fifth symphony. These three works, often characterized as unexpectedly spacious and relaxed, do suggest that Beethoven was catching his breath before returning to the heroic, titanic struggles of the Fifth Symphony. But they do not mark a shift in his direction. In fact, ideas for the Violin Concerto and the Fifth Symphony exist side by side in his sketchbooks. We need only listen to the opening pages of the Fourth Symphony to understand that it was written in the midst of Beethoven's work on the Fifth, and that it is, in fact, more its companion than its antithesis. Beethoven begins with a slow introduction of deep darkness and suspense, not in B-flat major, as the key signature promises, but B-flat minor. And, like the opening of the Fifth Symphony, it starts with a series of descending thirds. Beethoven is unusually stingy with notes and hesitant to get moving. The spareness of this passage provoked Weber's scorn, and the symphony seems at first to be stuck in slow motion, which makes the sudden arrival of lively music in the proper key all the more startling. The Allegro Vivace is full of activity and unexpected dynamic contrast. It's playful and witty, but also dramatic. 
As Beethoven approaches the recapitulation, he suddenly drops down to a pianissimo and coaxes the music back to life over the ominous roll of the timpani. This movement may be less serious and lofty, to use Grove's words, than the corresponding one in the fifth, and it is certainly lighter in tone, but it is far from lightweight. In terms of economy and tightly coiled energy, it is every bit the equal of its more familiar counterpart. The second movement is a graceful and expansive song. The cantabile singing marking is especially apt, made particularly memorable by a restless, insistent accompaniment that refuses to remain quietly in the background. Schumann, one of the symphony's first great admirers, found the effect unexpectedly humorous, a veritable Falstaff, in particular when occurring in the bass or the timpani. For the first time in his career, Beethoven enlarges the floor plan of the third movement in order to bring back the trio a second time. Ever economical, he then cuts short the ensuing third statement of the scherzo with an unmistakable rejoinder from the horns. The finale is a brilliant exercise in movement and contrast worthy of Haydn in earthly humor and high spirits. It is neither spectacular nor heroic and does not call attention to itself like some of the more famous Beethoven finales, but brings this symphony to a perfect conclusion. Philip Husher's program notes on Beethoven's Symphony No. 4. And now, on to the preludes to Acts 3 and 1 of Richard Wagner's Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg, The Mastersingers of Nürnberg. The prelude to Act 3 lasts about 7 minutes, the prelude to Act 1 about 10 minutes. Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg has always stood apart from the rest of Wagner's output because it is on the surface a comic opera. It warrants comparison with few other comic operas beyond those of Mozart because it is essentially so serious and moving. The American composer and critic Virgil Thompson said that it is all direct and human and warm and sentimental and down to earth. It is unique among Wagner's theatrical works in that none of the characters takes drugs or gets mixed up with magic. Wagner wrote Die Meistersinger in a slump, financially and emotionally. After having abandoned work on The Ring, the greatest undertaking of his career, with little hope of ever getting it on the stage, he turned out two enormously successful masterpieces, Tristan und Isolde, arguably the most important score of that masterpiece-packed century, and Die Meistersinger von Nürnberg. Die Meistersinger tells the story, in Thompson's words, of a never-never land where shoemakers give vocal lessons, where presidents of music societies offer their daughters as prizes in musical contests, and where music critics believe in the rules of composition and get mobbed for preferring young girls to young composers. Despite all the shenanigans and frivolity, the Meistersinger includes some of Wagner's most deeply touching music. I laugh and cry while writing it, Wagner himself said, and many listeners have responded similarly. The prelude to the third act finds Hansox, Wagner's wise shoemaker, in his workshop lost in thought. It is the morning of the great singing contest that will determine the fate of the main characters in Wagner's comedy. 
This is interior music, measured and contemplative, in contrast to the expansive and grandiloquent outdoor music for the public festivities at which the prize is awarded that will bring Die Meistersinger to an end. The opening theme of the Act Three prelude, a broad cello melody that soon leaps to the other strings, first appeared in Act Two as a counter-melody to one of Salk's great outpourings. The solemn chorale that follows, intoned first by the horns and bassoons, will become the hymn the villagers sing to honor Sachs at the opera's conclusion. As Wagner's work on Die Meistersinger progressed, the figure of Hans Sachs came more and more to embody Wagner's own thoughts. This prelude might almost reflect a portrait of the composer in his own study in 1866 as the opera neared completion. Wagner wrote to King Ludwig, I am sitting here in my lonely lakeside fortress, like Sachs in his cobbler's shop, observing the world with a view to writing poetry and music about it. Wagner wrote the brilliant prelude to Die Meistersinger before he began actually composing the opera itself, reversing the usual process, and he said that he saw in it the clear outlines of the leading themes of the whole drama. Indeed, we begin in the majesty of C major, with the important music of the Meistersinger's Guild, and then hear the prize-winning song of the young aspirant Walter, followed by the festive procession of the masters. Those are the three main themes, though Wagner also works into the prelude, the eager apprentices, and the chattering spectators at the song competition. Though designed as a curtain raiser, the prelude is a brilliant achievement as pure music crowned by the stroke of the triangle, marking the moment when Wagner brings together in magnificent polyphony his three principal themes. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the preludes to Acts 3 and 1 of Wagner's Die Meistersinger. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.